get off name welcome to summer valley fm here you're on with todd's time travel you're here with todd and simon at stonehenge hello simon thanks for joining <laughs> yeah so um simon tell me about yourself and um what we're doing here at stonehenge as well my name's simon banton and uh, ever since the age of seven i've been an astronomer and for about the last 30 years i've been really interested in ancient astronomy so i'm now what's called an archaeo astronomer and i study humanity's relationship with the sky and of course stonehenge is well known for being lined up to various times of the year sunrises and sunsets and what have you so about uh, 15 16 years ago i moved to this part of the world and decided, well, if I'm going to study this stuff, I might as well study it at Stonehenge. Yeah, which is why not? Because why not? <laughs> so uh, I kind of parked my software development company and uh, got a job working for English Heritage as a guide down at the Stones, uh, which was great because it meant I got to have special access to the <laughs> monument to do kinds of research and things. I could lucky. Yeah, come in out of hours and do the sort of observations that aren't normally available no. to people. No. Uh, so um, that's where the fascination really took off. And, uh, and these days I, I give talks on archaeoastronomy and I do tours of the Stonehenge landscape for tour groups and tell them all about the monument. Yeah. And uh, so it's kind of the archaeology of the place and the society of the place tied in with what the monument's actually probably about yeah. from my point of view yeah so that's me you're, you're running so you're running solo now but you get, get, yeah, get, yeah. Him, get him to do what you love it's yes amazing as well exactly now stonehenge has mm. lots of open questions because mm. it runs so far back in our in in, in our english history as well mm. it's, it's a, a monumental site for not just the english heritage but well, the heritage world. as yeah, well, yeah. because everyone, everyone knows Stonehenge. Yeah, yeah. You can build it anywhere in the world, you go, that's Stonehenge. Yeah, two uprights, one across them, and that's Stonehenge. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, everybody knows that. But we are, placement-wise, we're, we're, we're not where most people would think we are. So Stonehenge is not, it's a major city, we're not near Bath, we're not really near Bristol. We're kind of like in between of what I would say is the, um, the trading, we're in, in a trading room, what I, what I think would be a trading room mm. for like um, for Romans, possibly Celts before that as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're talking all Celtic times to where Stonehenge. Yeah, well, if you, if, you go, if you go right, right back, then I mean, the first monumentalism on the site is actually a lot older than people think. I mean, the traditionally known history of Stonehenge is that it's about 5,000 years old. Mm. That's when the bank and ditch gets dug and possibly the bluestones from Wales arrive 3000 BC. It gets set up in 56 pits just inside that in a ring before there's anything in the middle. And that's what you know everybody understands to be the origin of Stonehenge. But when they were excavating the car park, the old visitor centre in the 1960s, they made an astonishing discovery that was completely unexpected. Three massive post holes that once held timbers, pine posts, probably, you know, nearly three foot a metre across or so. Very luckily, there was a little bit of charcoal from those posts oh, in the bottom of two of these pits. And first one dated to 7,900 BC. So nearly 10,000 years ago, the society that was living in this landscape erected a massive pine post. Yeah? 
And a couple of hundred years later, and about five meters away from it mm. to the east, they did it again. <laughs> and then they did it a third time. But we don't have a date for the third that one. But, okay. but these are in line with, with what's called a tree throw hole. That's when a big tree blows over, the roots pull up the earth. And then what's left, that hollow, is called a tree throw. And these three post holes are in line with that tree throw. And it's been a bit of a mystery. Firstly, why do you do this? And secondly, who did this? Yeah. Because at this time, it's the, it's the Mesolithic time in Britain, and the society are all hunters and gatherers. And hunters and gatherers don't tend to, we've never had evidence before, of yeah. creating monuments. Because they're a sort of a transient population that move from one place to Perfect. another yeah, yeah. with the seasons following the animals and, and all the rest yeah. of it. So, Stonehenge, its history of monumentalism goes back 10,000 years, not 5,000 years. And I think that's brilliant yeah. because there's now markers in the basically the bus turning circle uh, down at the, the, the monument um, which show where these post holes were. And you can stand there just as you've got off the bus and you can look out over this landscape and you're standing next to the very first thing that was erected at Stonehenge. Blimey. Uh, just, right, 10,000 years though. Yeah, 10,000 years. And for ages we wondered, who were these people? And oh, yeah. what, what were these things for? And people suggest things like, well, they're totem poles, yeah. uh, by analogy with sort of um, the, the West Coast uh, Native American societies in America. Yeah. Um, but the trouble is that the actual totem pole building culture over there is only a couple of hundred years old. It's not an ancient, ancient, ancient tradition. So us assuming they're totem poles is kind of not really a reasonable answer. No. I've a proper explanation for what they're for, but clearly they were deliberate and yeah. they took a huge effort to do it. Yeah, yeah, of course, as, as of getting the stones there as well. Yeah, so you fast forward, you, you, you well, we'll just talk about the society that might put them up. We wondered who they were, and only in the last decade have we just have we worked out where those people were living exactly at the time these posts were put up. Right. And it's right next to the River Avon in Amesbury. Oh, in okay. the grounds of Amesbury Abbey. Yeah. yeah. And a little place at the foot of uh, an Iron Age hill fort called Vespasian's Camp. There's a place called Blickmead. Okay. And it's by a spring pool, and the water comes up from underneath. And that water, because it's a constant temperature, because it comes up from the chalk, right, yeah, 11 yeah. degrees C or thereabouts, yeah. it never ever freezes. No. So it's in this nice sheltered location, no. fresh spring water in a pool, the perfect location for hunters and gatherers to go to for fresh water, for fresh water yeah. repeatedly. And in the course of a decade's worth of excavations, we've gone from about 30 or 40 Mesolithic tools found across the entire World Heritage Site to from one seven by five meter trench, nearly 40,000. So these people are returning to this spot and they're creating their flint tools, and they're killing the primordial cattle called aurochs. They're hunting them. They like the high plains. Yeah. yeah. They're really good at killing them. We've got, <laughs> we've got an aurochs. They're, they're massive. Yeah. Uh, really big, massive. Big, big, big. We're talking about two tons. Yeah. Two meters at the shoulder, 
a metre and a half span of the straight horns. They're the sort of animals that you see uh, depicted in cave paintings yeah, yeah, yeah. in Lascaux in France, oh, places like that. Huge animals. And they're totally wild. They're not domesticated. So if you're going to kill one, you've got to be good at hunting. Mm, you better make sure you kill it. Yeah, well, that's right. The last <laughs> thing you want is an angry aurochs chasing you across the landscape. And what we've got from the Blickmead excavations is lots and lots of aurochs bones. Some of them are cooked. Yeah. Yeah, most of them are cooked. But crucially, we've got an ankle bone, and embedded in it is the tip of a flint spear. So oh, wow. they've clearly hunted it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that ended up in the spring pool. Wow. And we've got aurochs hoof prints around it. And the radiocarbon dating from this site, Blickmead, yeah. covers around about eight and a half thousand BC all the way up to around about four and a half thousand BC so they're returning to this spot over mm. the span of four thousand years yeah, or yeah, so brilliant. and that is smack bang over the time when those big posts were being put up at Stonehenge so this is probably the people who did that yeah. job well, that's the bonus because like with springs it's quite it, it does seem to be that when we have springs that have been around for you know generations of thousands of years that when the generations have left they have left things in the spring and by doing so it gives us a more better idea on how to follow the story absolutely just one, well, like you said something from like a, a hoof or, yeah. a, or, or yeah. an ankle yeah. so something as simple as a, a, sp a spearhead yeah yeah we found spearheads here so we've yeah. got an idea of it's yeah. called actually older than Romans been here. Oh yeah, like yeah, yeah. the years. Romans co-opted yeah, yeah, the, like, the, the oh, warm... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but like again, that was supposed to be a different purpose because it was a warm spring, so yeah. it was like a warmer purpose. Yeah. The colder springs were always used by... There's something special about water that comes up magically from yeah. below the ground. Yeah. And it's there in all the myths and traditions. Yeah. That it's the border between this world and, next. and the next world, yeah. the underworld. Yeah. 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 Um, and in Welsh it's called the Anuin, the Abyss. Yes, yeah. yeah. So, it changes depending on the, cul the culture, uh, culture yeah. and religion. Yeah. Yeah. But putting things into water is a very mm. deliberate act. Oh, yes. And, and we still do it today. You yeah, throw yeah. a penny in a wishing well. Well, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It could be, well, in Roman terms, it was either an offering or a curse. But yeah. with other cultures, yeah. it might be something different. Yeah. But, or yeah. it could be something similar to just call it something else. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's nice that we have, we have these artifacts because the, an artifact is, is so useful in terms of if we have a gap and we don't know what was going on at the time, a small piece of evidence can lead to the biggest story. Oh, yeah. So we've we've wrapped up that little bit of the mystery, yeah. And yeah. for me, that, that mystery of this landscape is really what's special about it. I mean there's very few places, um, certainly in, in Britain, there's one or two, but there's very few places where you can go somewhere and know that you're looking out at a landscape where people have regarded it as special for ten thousand years. Yeah, of course. To the end of the last ice age. Yeah. yeah. So that's the Mesolithic culture. Yeah. Now, if you've dealt with them. Wash <laughs> okay. your hands. <laughs> and at the point where farming starts in Britain, that's about 4,000 BC. Okay, it's about the agriculture, yeah, yeah, agriculture yeah. starts to come in, ceramics start to come in, we start to see pottery arriving. Yeah. It doesn't exist in the Mesolithic, it's there in the Neolithic, the New Stone Age. And between Amesbury and Stonehenge, mm -hmm. There's a hill called King Barrow Ridge. Yeah, that's where yeah, the A303 yeah. goes over. Um, one side of it's called King Barrow Ridge because it's got lots of Bronze Age round barrows along okay. the top. The King right. Barrows, the new King Barrows, the old King Barrows. Good to know. <laughs> and the south side of the A303 is called Coneybury Hill. 
Yeah? Right. And it's got barrows on it as well. And it's also got a, a little henge on it called yes. Coneybury Henge. Okay. Yeah? And that was excavated by Julian Richards in the sort of late 1970s, very early 80s. And next to it, he found something in the geophysics, which was then excavated. It was known as the Coneybury Anomaly. An anomaly in geophysics is a sort of, ooh, what's that? <laughs> yeah. So he dug it up, and it turns out to be a feasting pit. So oh, right. a bunch okay. of people got together at a massive blowout party, and they put all their stuff in a pit, and then they buried it, and then off they went. When we look at the finds in there, we find that there are sticated remains, right. and there are also wild animal remains, and there's mesolithic and Neolithic contexts in the same pit. This suggests that the hunter-gatherers in this area yeah. and the first farmers who migrated into this area from the continent yeah. were having a big party together. Interesting. Now that to me says that if they're getting on that well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they're in this special landscape, mm. maybe they're telling each other the stories of their places. Yeah. And maybe the Mesolithic people are carrying on the tradition and passing on their stories about yeah, this landscape to the next people who start creating monuments in yeah. here. And I think that specialness of this landscape is being passed down from one culture to the next. Yeah. So the Neolithic people come along and a thousand years later, about 3000 BC, they're the ones who create the ditch and the bank that's going to surround what's now Stonehenge. Yeah. Yeah? And they are the people who fetch the blue stones from Wales and bring them to the side and probably set them up in that ring of 56 just inside that bank and ditch before there's anything in the middle. Mm. Yeah? That's around about 3000 BC. We've got cremated remains from the Aubrey holes, which are the 56 holes, uh, and we've got cremated remains from the ditch itself and buried in the bank. And recent analysis of those bones has shown that some of those people didn't grow up on the chalk. Ah. We can analyze the, um, the sort of the isotope balance in teeth and bones yeah. to work out where people were born and brought up and where they were when they were dying. Because as your cells are regenerated, yes. you're taking in isotope balances of the stuff you're eating and that's local. Yeah. Yeah. And your teeth form and you drink water from the place where you're born, that takes up an isotope balance. So it gives us a way of tracking where people have come from and where they're dead. And so some of these burials are people who come from the same geology as Southwest Wales. Which is where the blue stones yeah. come from. Well, I never believe in coincidences. Eh? <laughs> so I suspect that there's there's this sort of this transfer of, of people that, yeah. that when they come over, they yeah. probably came over and built all this thing. Although when you set the stones, you would think you would really want to leave. Then would you? My work is done. I go back to Wales. Goodbye. Yeah. Well, this is the first stones on the site. If indeed it is the blue stones, yeah. I think it's. The balance of probability is that the blue stones are there 5,000 years ago. Yeah. The very first thing on the site. Yeah. The heel stone, which is the massive stone that oh, stands that's a, that's a separate, separate one. one. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's it. Um, that's that's a, ty a different type of stone. It's called a sarsen. And all the big stones at Stonehenge are made of this sarsen material. It's yeah. a really, really hard sandstone. And it's local. So as the blue stones come from a long way away, Sarsen is local, within 15 miles or so for the big stones of Stonehenge. But the heel stone's unique. It hasn't been shaped by people. 
all of the other sarsens on the site show signs of having been tooled yeah. and worked. It's shaped, shaped to how they want it. Yeah. But not the heel stone. But the heel stone hasn't. Heel stone. It's a natural boulder. So I suspect that was probably on the site from the very, very beginning. They never brought it over. They never brought it. It was just lying there. <laughs> in the grass on top of the chalk. Yeah. Can I imagine finish it again and be like, what do you want to do with this one? Uh, <laughs> so pop over there. That's a special one. That's a special one. Yeah. We'll talk a little bit more about the heelstone uh, in, in a bit because there's the, the why is it this spot? Why there? Why there? Why there? Yeah. We'll come back to that. So 3000 BC, you've got the bank and ditch, you've got Aubrey Hole, Doug, and probably got the blue stones from Wales yeah. in them, 56. And people are still being buried in the ditch, their cremated remains. So far, we've got more than 60 individuals. Okay, continuing yeah. the tradition. Okay. Yeah. And we've never excavated all the way around the ditch. We've only ever done half of it. Oh, so, there's so there's probably more. There's a concentration of burials in the southeasterly direction towards where the winter solstice sunrise direction. Is that like uh, the, the, um, the hill one? There's lots of hill, hill burials in there. With, um, from like Stone Age, and they, is that the ones we're talking about, or is this these, again, the ground, ground, these, these are cremations buried in the ground. In the ground, yeah. yeah. We're at a time where people aren't doing body burials, okay. whole body right. burials. Yeah. Uh, we've just come past the time when features called long barrows were being created. Yeah. Yeah, they're about 3600 BC, okay. so half a millennia before the back and ditches down there. Yeah. And those long barrows, there are lots in the landscape around here. In fact, it's got the densest concentration of long barrows per area <laughs> uh, anywhere. Yeah, and it's just west of Stonehenge by Long Barrow Crossroads and just south of the 303 just where the tunnel portal is going to come out. <laughs> but there we go. Yep. So long barrows were places probably for storing lots and lots of individuals' bones. Okay. Yeah, we know this from West Kennet up at Avebury. There are about 40 individuals' bodies in there. Mm. Yeah. And it looks like they're being put in and then brought back out and then put back in and brought back out. Maybe they're taking part in the ceremonies and the parties that that society's having. Yeah. But the burials of Stonehenge you've been talking about around the Bank and Ditch are cremations. It's a different style of burial. So this is 3000 BC. Those cremations carry on going up until about 2500 BC and then they stop. And in 2500 BC, what happens at Stonehenge? The big rocks arrive. And the thing about the big rocks at Stonehenge is it's not a random circle of stones. Someone's planned it. Yeah. Someone's very deliberately planned that yeah. precise arrangement. Yeah. And that's where the astronomy comes Yeah, because of where the location is and why yeah. it shows and where it is. And yeah. So if we just talk about the, the, the structure of the monument, if you assume it was finished, yeah, and that yeah. is a big assumption, yeah, yeah. if you assume it was finished, then what you'd be looking at with the big sarsen stones would be a ring of 30 of them. All the way around. All yeah. the way around. And the diameter of that ring is almost exactly 100 feet, 30 metres and a bit, yeah? And capping all of those stones in a ring are the horizontal lintel stones, yeah? yeah? So the uprights of that circle, they range from around about 18 to 25 tonnes or so. The lintels range from about 4 to 8 or 9 tonnes or so, yeah? And the spacing of that circle, there's one stone to the next, the centre of one stone to the next, all the way around, is exactly the same. 
all the way around. Very carefully laid out, and there's one exception. It's the two stones that stand on either side of the entrance into the monument, yeah, which faces the northeast, looks out towards the heelstone and the rising sun on the midsummer sunrise. Those two stones have been put one and a half of the standard gap apart, and the stones beyond them are uh, three-quarter of a gap. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got a deliberate entranceway having been created to admit people, the beams of the sun, whatever else, and give you a good view out. Yeah. So it's cleverly laid out. 30 generally evenly spaced stones, apart from the entranceway, with 30 lintels all the way around. Something like four metres up in the air. Mm. Yeah. 14 feet or thereabouts. And the ground slopes from the back of the circle in the southwest to the front of the circle in the northeast. It falls about nearly a metre from one side to the other, but the lintel ring is accurate horizontally to a couple of centimetres. So they've used longer stones on the downslope, shorter stones on the upslope, and they've got the lintel ring level. That's really sophisticated engineering. Well, yeah, I was going to say, the amount of precision that needs to go into and yeah. the planning. Yeah. You can't just, like... You can't just throw can't it up. No, 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 exactly. Let's see if we can get this. You can't shuffle it about a bit. You no, can't no, no. Once you've got a 25 tonne in the ground, it's not really going anywhere. No, exactly. Yeah? It might settle a bit from one year to the next. Yeah. yeah? But you probably put it up and then leave it a year yeah. before you dress the top down to yeah. the level that you want and you leave that little point that's on the top of each upright. In fact, all the uprights in the circle have got two points on them, on either side of the top, called tenons, and they locate in hollows underneath either end of each lintel, so they fit together like, almost like Lego, to lock it together. So the lintels aren't just balanced up there, they're actually on tenon and mortise joints. Yeah. And side to side, the lintels are joined together with tongue and groove joints. So it's a tongue work down the edge of one and a groove work down the edge of the one next to it, and that's how they lock together. It's probably one of the reasons why so much of it is still actually standing yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah, if it was just if it's poor craftsmanship, it would be gone. It would have gone. <laughs> yeah. So that's an exquisite piece of engineering, and that's yeah. just the circle. Yeah. Yeah. If you go inside that circle, the next set of really big stones that you see are the famous trilithons, the two uprights and one across, yeah. these doorways that everyone knows as the iconic image of Stonehenge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, see. yeah. <laughs> there's five trilithons all together, yeah, and they're arranged in a horseshoe shape inside the circle. The open end of the horseshoe faces out towards the summer solstice sunrise direction. Yeah, out through that entranceway in the circle and off across the landscape, past the heelstone and beyond. They're not all the same height. Now, the two <laughs> trilithons that are opposite each other in the northeast end of the horseshoe are low, and by low I mean they're, they're not sort of <laughs> ridiculous. No, no, yeah. no, no, no. They're only about five metres yeah. tall, five or six metres tall or so. Yeah. But they're the same height, and they face each other, the open end of the horseshoe. The next two, towards the southwest, that face each other across the horseshoe, are a bit taller. And then the one that's at the top of the horseshoe, the closed end of it, sitting exactly on the solstice line, 
that single triathlon, the tallest one of all, was really, really big. Yeah. So they go small, medium, large. Yeah. In the direction of the side. Yeah. Yes, the scale. So as you come in the entranceway, you're you're looking at something that's magnificent and increasing in scale as yeah. you look towards the southwest. And to give you an idea of the scale of the biggest triathlon, we've only got one stone of it still standing, unfortunately. Yeah. It's the tallest stone at Stonehenge. Its partner has collapsed in the way distant past and it's broken in two. And the lintel, of course, has fallen as well. Yeah. And it's, well, it's lying on its side in the side there, and you can see it's yeah. there. Yeah. The one that's still standing is getting on for 10 metres long. Uh. Yeah, <laughs> two and a half metres of it is in the ground. So it's 15 metres. No, 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 10 metres altogether. Oh, right. Two and a half metres of it is in the ground. Seven and a half metres from the grass to the platform that supported the lintel. Oh, it's yeah. Yeah, it's enormous. It's getting on for 40, 45 tonnes. That, the biggest awesome. like, triathlon, uh, that, was, the, that, that was the tallest triathlon. I was going to say, that supported the lintel next to it the one that's fallen and broken into. Clearly, they couldn't find another 30 foot long stone because this one's shorter yeah. by four foot. Um, so it's a metre and a half shorter. So it only went in the ground a metre instead of two and a half metres. Right. And of course, you need the tops level if you're going to support the horizontal stone. Yeah. Yeah. So they've gone, oh God, you know, and I can imagine a conversation with <laughs> the guy who's organising the work. Like, Look, if you think you can find another longer stone, be my guest. But I'm telling you, this is the second biggest. So we're going to have to use this one. I don't care, it's a metre and a half shorter. Yeah. And at the bottom of that one, in contrast to the one that's still standing, which we know from excavation is beautifully dressed all the way down to the very bottom of it in the ground, beautifully shaped and dressed. The one that's fallen and was shorter, they left a big bulb of rock at the bottom to try and act as a bit of a counterweight to keep it upright. So they've had to compromise and unfortunately it's not worked and it has collapsed. Which is a shame. Yeah. And we can never put it back up because it's broken. Yeah. So that's a pity. No. So of those five original triathlons, there's only now three standing. Yeah. The tallest one's collapsed and broken upright, and the other one, one half of that, has collapsed and broken into three pieces, oh, and its okay. lintel has collapsed with it and broken into the three pieces. pieces. Are kept, the pieces yeah. are all there in yeah. the centre. Yeah. So. That's the Sarsen Monument, a ring of stones supporting a ring of lintels surrounding a horseshoe of massive trilithons that increased in height towards the southwest, three of which we've still got standing. Yeah. Yeah. But there's other stones in the centre. There's blue stones in the centre, Dave. <laughs> yeah, so they're Welsh stones. Now, if we assume that the Welsh stones arrived 500 years before the big rocks were put up yeah. and they were in that ring outside yeah, just inside the bank of ditch and we can tell by looking at the Sarsen monument that there's a definite design a deliberate design has been done for that what do what did they do with the blue stones that were part of that original monument they clearly didn't have a design for them but they didn't want to just throw them away because that would be slighting the ancestors yeah, yeah, of so they moved inside their new monument and they set up initially a double arc of bluestone inside the Sarsen Circle but right. outside the Trilithon Horseshoe. Yeah. Yeah, 
in what are called the Q and R holes. Just that's the archaeological labels for them. So there's a double row of stones in the northeast side of that circle. And as it got to the entrance, it became a quadruple row just either side of the entranceway into the monument. So you'd come through the big Sarsden gateway and the thing that would be next in line would be a double row arc of blue stones with four in a line sort of guiding you into the centre either side of your path. Yeah. Clearly, they weren't happy with that <laughs> because they took them all down again. <laughs> And they went, no, 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 that's not going to do. Um, tell you what, we'll try this instead. They then put the blue stones in a circle inside the Sarsen circle, and they put another circle in the middle inside the horseshoe of Trilophons. And they went, yeah, but uh, no, no, we don't like that either. And a couple of hundred years later, they rearranged them for a third time in the middle into what we've got now which is a circle of rough, unshaped blue stones just inside the Sarsen circle, and a horseshoe of nicely dressed blue stones inside the Sarsen horseshoe. And the blue stones, the biggest one's about eight foot tall above the ground. Yeah, two and a bit meters above the ground. Yeah, The littlest ones are little stumpy things. Yeah. It's clear that they didn't have a plan for the blue stones and they had to have three attempts until they got something they were happy to leave. Yeah. Yeah, they're moving around. You can move a blue stone around three or four tons for the biggest one, you know. It's it's not trivial, but it's not difficult. No. Yeah? So you can take them out. Once you put a sarsen up, you're kinda stuck. <laughs> it's gonna be there forever. Yeah? yeah. So the monument from the outside now looks the monument from the outside now, in form, is circle of big stones, circle of little stones. Triathlon horseshoe of big stones, horseshoe of little stones. So it's big, small, big, small, sarsen, blue stone, sarsen, blue stone. That's the order. So there's a pattern there. Yeah. So there's nice symmetry in there. And there's one more stone in the middle that we should talk about as well. It's another Welsh stone. But it doesn't come from the Priscelli Mountains like the rest of the blue stones do. We know for certain where they come from in the Priscelli Mountains. Geochemistry's nailed down the outcrops for the two main types, so we're confident about that. The last stone is called the altar stone. And it's called the altar stone because if this was a church, it's in the position where you'd put an altar. Yeah, in front of the magnificent sort of window at one end where the priest stands. Lying on the ground, underneath the collapsed remains of the tallest trilithon, is the altar stone. It's about 16 foot long, so what's that, 5 metres and a bit? Yeah, 16 feet, yeah. about 5 metres and a bit. It's about uh, a metre width-wise, and it's about half a metre thick or so. Lying down on the ground, in the middle, and it's made of a type of sandstone that doesn't come from the Priscelli's. It comes from the Brecon Beacons, which is East Wales. Yeah, it's completely <laughs> different. So it's a Welsh stone, but it's a different one. And it's a kind of a micaceous sandstone. Micaceous just means it's got lots of mica in it, and it, it's greenish in colour, um, quite fine-grained, and it glitters in the sun because of the mica. Ah, it's shiny. Right, okay. yeah? 
So it's a really special, one-of-a-kind stone in this special place. What we would call an altar in a church, and so that's why it's called the altar stone. Ah, right, okay. okay. Right, so circle, circle, horseshoe, horseshoe, altar stone lying on the ground. <laughs> that's Stonehenge. Now, in terms of alignments, every year, summer solstice, English Heritage open up the site the night before the dawn of the solstice and they let anybody in to the centre of the circle who can get here. Yeah? And that's been going on since 2000, uh, the year 2000, as a managed event by English Heritage. Um, it used to go on sort of informally, yeah? Yeah. Really going way, 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 way back. I'm talking even further than that. Yeah? There's reports of people going to the solstice that go back to medieval times. Okay. Yeah? But since 2000, with this managed thing, everyone's known about it and everybody's got personal transport now and everyone can get places. The record is 40,000 people at Stonehenge for the night of the summer solstice. Yeah. You're really far away, so. <laughs> you can't get 40,000 in the middle, but you can get them in the field. Yeah. And uh, I've been to every one of those, bar two or three, since 2000. Okay. Um, the first one I went to was 1984, the last year that there was a free music festival in the fields around uh, Stonehenge. Well done. That, was my, that was my first experience <laughs> of Stonehenge. But it's there slightly different to the experiences now. Though. Yeah, <laughs> it is. I mean, basically an entire city for three weeks. Yeah. 40,000 people and music and bands. and Yeah, yeah great. Um, I was 84. But from 2000 onwards, you have this ever-increasing number of people coming, especially when it falls on a weekend. And the one thing I've noticed is the chances of seeing sunrise actually on the solstice it's are rare. really quite small. Yeah, yeah. I've seen the sunrise probably half a dozen times maximum. And if you go and see yeah. four, that, that yeah. tells you to get yeah. an idea yeah. of percentage. But since 2000 to 2021, half a dozen times or so. I've been a couple of brilliant ones, but the trouble is there's upwards of 20,000 people in the way if you want to do any oh, yeah, observations. <laughs> it's very tricky, yeah? Because if everyone sort of knows Stonehenge for the rising sun at the summer solstice sunrise, and the place to stand, obviously, would be in the middle of the circle, yeah. look out through the entranceway, yeah. towards the heel stone, yeah. in the direction of what's called the avenue. And the avenue is a, well, it's judged to be a processional approach to the monument. It comes up the slope of the field that's northeast of Stonehenge. And the, the last stretch of it is about 500 metres or so. And it's dead straight and it's lined up with the solstices. In fact, the summer solstice rising position is the centre of the avenue. And the heelstone is not in the centre of the avenue. It's just a bit offset to the right if you're looking out from Stonehenge. So everyone says, well, the sun rises out of the heelstone. The sun <laughs> no, it doesn't. It certainly doesn't because of two reasons. Um, firstly, the heelstone's offset. Yeah. And secondly, it's four and a half thousand years since Stonehenge was built, and the Earth's tilt has changed slightly since then. Yeah. That's it's constant. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's the change in the tilt of the earth that's made a difference. Yeah. Um, what it's done is it shunted the sunrise position to the right a little bit at summer solstice by about, well, if you imagine the sun on the horizon and then imagine a gap of the same size of the sun yeah. and then imagine the sun again. Left position is where it was, right position is where it is now. It's drifted to the right by a sun's position. Okay. The 
the centre line of the avenue points to where the sunrise was at the time Stonehenge was built. And now, because there's trees on the horizon in the far distance, that's kicked the sunrise to the right even more. So now the sun appears to rise out of the top of the right tip of the eels there. So it's way off. Yeah, it'd be nice to take those trees down. Yeah. Yeah, but sadly, that's not going to happen no. unless I get some copper nails and a jail sentence. Yeah. <laughs> it would be nice to do. No, no, I, I, I really wish the MOD would chop down that stretch. Yeah, but it would be nice. Restore the sun gap yes. that they left in the early 20th century when they built a load of flying sheds up there for a, a, a military aircraft competition. Oh, right. They left a deliberate gap just in so the shed just so people could keep seeing oh, the sunrise. Yeah, called the sun gap at Lark Hill, but sadly the trees have grown up since. So, cut down. That's my message for this. <laughs> cut the trees down on Lark Hill. Yeah. <laughs> I don't agree with my coach, my listeners, to chop down trees. No, but right to people. <laughs> yes, yeah. They're horrible scrappy trees anyway. <laughs> they're, they're, they're not tree preservation trees. Oh, okay, they're awful they scrubby. So everyone gets there, stands in the middle of Stonehenge as close as they can. They look out for the entranceway at the Heelstone, waiting for the sun. And half a dozen times in 20 years, you'll see the sun. Yeah. Hooray! Big cheer. Uh, mostly it's cloudy if it's not raining. Yeah, so you get Britain yeah, <laughs> in the summer, exactly. Yeah. But when I worked for English Heritage at Stonehenge, yeah. I got to abuse my staff privileges. As you did. And come in <laughs> at the crack of dawn for the few days before summer solstice. Yeah. And because it's solstice, it means sun stands still. Its yeah. rising position on the horizon doesn't change appreciably from day to day. And near the solstice, a few days either side, you actually need instruments to be able to tell that the sun's position is changing. Oh, okay. To the naked eye, it's absolutely standing still, rising in the same place yeah. for four or five days either side of it. So I came in, got about quarter to three in the morning for a, a week or more, and couple of days before solstice in 2014 I got a perfectly clear sunrise and from standing in exactly the right position in the center of the stones looking out through the entranceway so I could do the observation and say where does the sun actually appear yeah and from where it appears today I can calculate where it appeared four and a half thousand years ago because the change in the earth still is yeah. predictable and calculatable yeah, yeah. And so I can tell that it used to rise to the left of the heelstone, over the treeless horizon. Yeah, that was where the first gleam was. And it turns out that we're all standing in exactly the wrong place. We should be standing by the heelstone, looking at Stonehenge. Oh, so this is the complete opposite side. Yeah, because I, yeah. I remember when we stood there before. And yeah, actually, you're right. Because I remember yeah. on the opposite side, there's that little gap you've left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't think that yeah, the opposite. No. Yeah. You should be standing next to the hillstone in the centre of the avenue at sunrise. Right. Because as the sun rises, it climbs behind the tip of the hillstone, and the hillstone casts a shadow. And that shadow of the heelstone runs up the slope, yeah. 80 metres, to Stonehenge. Yeah. It goes straight through that entranceway yeah. in the Sarsen Circle, that one and a half gap. And the tip of the shadow, four and a half thousand years ago, lands exactly on the altar stone. 
that's some clever engineering to achieve that. I not just them, you as well. You're not wanting to figure it out. Well, <laughs> I didn't figure it out. Yeah? What I did was I helped confirm somebody else's idea. Um, okay? There's a guy called Professor Terence Mead, and he's been fascinated with Avery Stonehenge, other stone circles, for decades. He's in his 80s now, really intelligent, sound guy. He's brilliant. And he's had this idea that the shadow of the heelstone penetrating the monument is what the summer solstice is about. For getting on for 30 plus years or so. Yeah? And the difficulty has always been, how do you confirm this observation? Yeah? The way to confirm it is you go there near the solstice and you watch what the heelstone shadow does. Yeah. And I did this a couple of years ago and the tip of the heelstone shadow, you can see it on the bottom of the stone to the right of the entranceway and it comes up about a metre from the ground. So by that, and you can see the shadow across the land between you and the monument. Yeah? So because of that, you can work out, okay, where would the shadow be four and a half thousand years ago? How far would it stretch? So I was able to make photographs and calculations. And Terry's idea is, the sun represents the sacred masculine. Stonehenge represents the sacred feminine. So the earth goddess, if you like. Yeah? Yes, yes. And the heelstone's Mr. Pointy, <laughs> the sky father. And at the height of the sun's power, the shadow cast by the sky father penetrates and fertilizes the earth goddess. And nine months later is the spring equinox when the earth bursts back into life. Wow. So that neatly ties it together. No idea if this is genuinely the reason for doing it yeah, it's a good theory. but it works yeah. reading a book way after I'd done these observations yeah. just, just for a, a book for my own interest sake it was a book by Gerald Gardner uh, about the development of witchcraft yeah, Wicca Gerald Gardner uh, 1950s he basically invented Wicca modern paganism Wicca the sorts of rituals. He was trying to do it from all kinds of different sources, but he went out and he spoke to people who identified themselves as witches, uh, hedge witches and sort of wise women and the rest of them, and tucked away in one paragraph in the middle of this book, with no context whatsoever, <laughs> written in the 1950s, way before Terence had his idea, is a little sentence that says, Oh, and the witches say that you should go to Stonehenge on the summer solstice and watch the shadow of the heelstone fertilise the monument, the Earth Goddess. Now that I find interesting. Yeah. Because <laughs> it suggests that there's old handed down knowledge yeah. about a light and shadow effect at the monument. Well, it's quoted it down. So yeah. That we've completely forgotten, and it wasn't until Terry came up with the idea himself in the 90s, early 90s, and I then helped him confirm it a few years ago that we've rediscovered that lighting effect. Yeah. So, hmm, don't dismiss legend. No, exactly. Yeah. No, 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 there, there is a well. That's the thing about legend, the difference between legend and myth. A legend, there could be some truth. A little bit of truth, yeah, in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or it could sometimes they end up being true. Well, that's true as well. <laughs> so, if you're coming to Solstice at Stonehenge in the summertime and you're standing in the middle and you're looking, waiting for the sun to arise out of the top of the hillstone, you'll get a good light show. But if you want to see what the monument might have been for at summer solstice, come on a clear day, three or four days either side of solstice, walk across the landscape, 
stand in the National Trust field to the right of the heelstone and see if you can watch the shadow run up the slope and penetrate the centre. Amazing, yeah. that's absolutely incredible. Yeah. Um, the other story, I, I just want you to quickly brief on this story because I did find it quite interesting since the last minute that there was a skeleton that was found next to Stonehenge with three arrows. Ah, oh, the Stonehenge archer. <laughs> quite yeah. like the story. I think um, my listeners will play. <laughs> okay, right. So lots of excavations have been carried out around Stonehenge. Um, and in the late 1970s there was an excavation in the ditch just to the left of the avenue if you're standing in the middle of Stonehenge looking outwards and um, about half the ditch has been excavated in the past this was a bit that hadn't been done and look in it and we found a body uh, and it's a skeleton and he's crouched so he's, he's got his knees drawn up to his chest so it's a crouched inhumation that's what it's an actual body burial and the radiocarbon date for him is around about 2400, 2500 BC or so. So in that range where the big stones are going up at Stonehenge. And he had a, a stone wrist guard that you'd sort of strap onto your wrist if you didn't want your bowstring to twang you when you were firing an arrow. Oh, okay. Yeah. So uh, because there were arrowheads in the grave with him as well, he was called the Stonehenge Archer. Uh, fairly simple, fairly obvious. And then they looked a bit more closely at the body and they discovered that the tips of the arrows in the grave were actually missing. And they were embedded in him. So he's not the archer, he's the archie. <laughs> Somebody killed him. They shot him at least three times in the back. And when he'd finally gone face down on the ground, the coup de gras, killing final arrow shot, was from directly over him, straight through his back, and the tip of that arrowhead was embedded in the back of his breastbone. Now, what's that about? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, yeah I thought it was he's, quite interesting. He's a murder victim, or, I mean, murder. Mm, sacrifice? Well, if he's an actual sacrifice, that's Why use arrows? Yeah, why, <laughs> why, yeah, why take yeah, three? Yeah, and why take yeah, three? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All of these questions, and, and it's fascinating because... We don't have a lot of evidence for human sacrifice no, in Britain, no. yeah, despite what people like to think about druids. No, yeah, no, that's all Caesar. No, yeah. No. Yeah. But there are questions like if he's an interloper, if he's not supposed to be there and you kill him because yeah. he's there, why then bury him in the ditch exactly. of this sacred monument? You wouldn't. No, you'd drag him off and chuck him yeah. in the river or Somewhere leave him out for the birds to pack. But there is a tradition um, that goes back across Europe. Uh, it originally comes from Greece, and it's written about by a man called uh, Fraser in a book called The Golden Bough, about the sacred woods of Diana in Greece, okay. and the guardian of the sacred woods. Yeah. And the guardian of the sacred woods is a very special position, and you're allowed to keep it for as long as nobody's able to kill you. And then the person who kills you takes over the job. Right. <laughs> I often wonder whether the Stonehenge Archie was a guardian of the site that was killed by somebody to demonstrate that the guardian was getting on a bit or wasn't up to the job. And maybe as a, some memorial to his work, they buried him on site, maybe? 
because it was a respected position yeah. and an honoured thing. Yeah. Yeah? It's one possible explanation. Yeah. There's also this idea that, okay, there are places that are between the special places and the ordinary places. Yeah. These liminal spaces that are sort of the twilight zone yeah. between them. And if you think about the <coughs> bank and ditch around Stonehenge being the border of Stonehenge yeah. and the outside of it being where everyone else is able to be, being buried on that sort of sort of um, borderline between them, maybe yeah. that's got a significance. We'll never know. No, but it is interesting. Though. But it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Stonehenge Archie. I like to think someone was like really bad at aiming like just hold, just, just hold still. No, that wasn't it. Okay, try again. <laughs> Can I just ask him to stand there? If it was a sacrifice, like, stand still, it'll fall over soon. After that, three <laughs> shots. <laughs> we do have we do have examples from elsewhere in Europe uh, of um, deliberate uh, sacrifice of people, yeah. uh, bog bodies particularly, yeah. and uh, they have a triple death. So they'll be um, they'll be garroted, right. um, stabbed, yeah. and then bashed on the head. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. and so you know, and then chucked in the bog. Yeah. Yeah. But, but like, but like you say, with human sacrifice again, as you just said, Romans really oversold what the Celts were doing. But yeah, it, it's it is something we don't really know much about. I mean, animal sacrifices we got tons, yep. we got tons of information because it was more common. Yep. We, you know, it's livestock. Yep. Yep. Really and if you think about it, um, I mean, we we often talk about the average age of people in in history, prehistory, yeah, yeah, uh, and the oh, the average age was thirty. You know, it sounds terrible, but what we fail to realise is when we do an average we're taking into account all of the really neonatal child deaths yeah. and that drags down the average. We've got evidence of people lasting into their 60s yeah. and 70s. And, and there's the a lot more different, you've got to go into the different attributes and factors that go on yeah. at the time. 30 for some people would probably be an old age. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and if you've managed to get to that point, if you've survived all the traumas of birth, yeah. starvation, yeah. childhood inju injuries, yeah. falling out tree breaking your leg getting a toothache and dying of infection yep. if you manage to survive all of that it seems very weird to then go and start killing those people because people are a valuable resource fit and healthy yeah. people are. yeah exactly yeah? so that human sacrifice is uh, it's not something I'm, I'm i'm keen on as an explanation no no it, it, you can only go with what you know and yeah. what we do know is very limited to be honest a lot of Celtic especially Celtic history a lot of that was out um it was sold by. It was, Roman. but uh, Caesar wrote um, the Gallic Wars, his conquest, the conquest of Gaul, yeah, and and that's where he talks about druids. Yeah, yeah, and we get that from him, and we get it from Tacitus. But they're very different tribes as well. They're very different tribes. Not and, like the ones <laughs> and he's the one who says, you know, that they've got these ovates and druids and yeah. bards, and, yeah. and the druids proceed over the justice and the judgments, and then he goes on about wicker men and yeah. stuffing them with people and setting fire to them. But he was interested in making them out to be really terrifying oh, of course. to really improve his PR. Yeah, Look yeah. who I defeated. Well, yeah, but, but when he got back to Rome, it was kind of like, these are the, these are the kind of people I fought. Look at what I've done. Yeah. 
now you've got to give the power to me. And yeah. it's kind of like, well, they really kind of weren't. They were living their own lives. You just decided to come in. <laughs> just like, I wouldn't really call that a victory. Yeah. I mean, we do know that Stonehenge isn't the Druid monument originally. No. Yeah, that modern Druids have, have co-opted it, and fair play. Yeah. yeah. They've been going to it and carrying out uh, ceremonies and rituals yeah. for at least 100 years. But if, it's a religious yeah. so, if it's a religious site, it's something that's no harm in That's right, yeah. yeah. You I can mean, adopt it to your own. Stonehenge doesn't judge. No. Yeah, it's seen any number of things. No, about exactly. It, yeah? But <coughs> what we do know is that the Iron Age druidic priesthood that, that we don't really like the word Celt in archaeology now as a, as a society no, thing. well because yeah. it, again it's a Roman time yeah, yeah well yeah the Keltoi and all yeah. the rest of it and the Danube and the rest, all that it's yeah. just a way of summarising yeah. <laughs> there's so but, many times but, <laughs> but druids have been sort of like stuck on Stonehenge ever since the 17th century yeah when John Aubrey initially the man who the Aubrey holes are named after mm finally realised that Stonehenge wasn't a Roman monument, it had to be earlier. Because people had given, given it to the Danes, to the Greeks, oh, to the Romans. Really? Oh, that yeah. doesn't surprise yeah, me. Yeah. And he went, no, 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 no. It's way further old than that, in the mists of time. And because it's so obviously a temple, yeah. and because a temple needs priests, yeah. and the only priests he'd heard about that were in Britain before the Romans were the Druids, yeah. he said, so it must be a Druid temple. Yeah. And then by the time William Stukeley comes along in the mid-1700s and writes Stonehenge, a temple restored to the British Druids, and styles himself as a Druid and you know, he's an ex-Church of England minister. You know, <laughs> he's got all the Druid robes and what have you. Yeah. By the time he writes that book and explains Stonehenge and the surrounding landscape in terms of that and mentions the Druids repeatedly, the idea took off. And from then on, Stonehenge is a Druid monument. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. But the Iron Age priesthood, we can't say for certain that there is a direct lineal connection between that priesthood and the people who celebrated at Stonehenge originally. Yeah, There's no evidence either way for that. We can't even say that there's a direct <coughs> link between that Iron Age priesthood and the reinvention of Druidry in the 18th century. Well, though people have tried to. Yet. <laughs> yeah. And there's any number of Druid orders now which celebrate and try to claim a lineal descent all the way back. But what we do know from Caesar is Druids worshipped in woodland, in groves, the sacred oaks. Yeah, um, Druids. Caesar said a lot of things. Yeah, <laughs> but, but we've got it from other sources as yeah. well. Yeah, there, there are other sources yeah. than Caesar for stuff about the Druidry. Yeah. And the one thing that Stonehenge has never been is in a wood. No. Yeah, we know the landscape's always been open. It's been clear. As it's, well. it's always been clear. Yeah. And if you're going to build a temple to the sky. I mean, so it could why, be seen. Would you, why, why would you have it in the wood? Yeah, you want yeah. it to be seen from yeah. one end, but where the sun can easily access yeah. it as well. Yeah. Where there's I mean, a good colour. Exactly. I and mean, we've only talked about the one direction at the moment, yeah. the, the, the summer solstice sunrise. There's three other key points of the year we could talk about as well. Yeah. 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 And that's not even taking into account the moon. <laughs> no. Which true. is a whole other. A whole other section. Well. Again, <laughs> thank you so much for your time today. Much appreciated. Absolute pleasure. Yeah, um, I look forward to a I'll return to Stonehenge. Thank you, Tom. <laughs>